Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Hello, everyone. I am Pastor Doug, and I want to welcome you, particularly those who might be here for the first time, to Foothills Christian Church. And I like to say that you have found something special. We are a different church. Uh, We're pretty unique because we are not a place that tells you what to think or what to believe. Our goal is to encourage you to think for yourself, work out what you believe. Now, I understand some people like it simple. They want to go somewhere where they trust someone to tell them what to believe and think. But history teaches that the most influential men and women, the ones that lived the greatest and most powerful lives filled with substance and value were people who thought for themselves. They knew what they believed, why they believed it. So they were convictions. They were people of great convictions. And because they did this, they left the world a much better place. Maybe they weren't famous. Maybe they didn't have some great discovery. But boy, their families and the people around them were forever impacted by the substance and value of their lives. And if you're looking for that, then you have found the right place. Our goal is to ask tough questions about life and why it can be so difficult, why we struggle through it, what kind of real answers are out there, what's the world saying, what's it really mean when it's saying it, and how that impacts my life. And so because of that, we have a little thing where we say, fluff, it ain't enough. We want something about real, we want something authentic, we want something strong. And we're in a series right now based on that principle called faith and science. Now, last week, uh, you can go back and listen to that message if you want. It's 30 minutes long. It's on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe when you're there. And it, uh, I, I grew up in a scientist home. My father was a researcher. And I always thought the two were fine, and it wasn't until I got to high school when I told, oh, it's not fine, you can't do that. And then college, I heard a bunch of that. And ever since then, media and news and movies and books and popular culture is all telling us that if you believe that science uh, is science, then you can't have faith because that's irrational. They are mutually exclusive. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of a heady subject, you know? I mean... I'm, I'm in real estate. I'm just moving real estate and I'm trying to figure out my dating life. Do I really need to talk about this right now? And he said, well, I'd just like you to know is that this really influences your life, especially if you have kids. See, when your kids get older, they're going to be confronted with this in a major way. Now, how that happens and stuff, we talked about a little bit last week about you have science and then you have atheism or naturalism and then you have theism And atheism and naturalism, which is a belief system, tries to use science to denigrate theism. And that's where the conflict rises. Conflict theory is an old theory that's been around, but it's been discredited. But everybody in society still believes it because naturalists and atheists are constantly 
pushing it. So your kids and your grandkids are going to be highly influenced by this at some point or another. Are you prepared to have a conversation with them to share with them the truth? Uh, it influences every area of your life right now. For instance, one of the things that science did over the last year that was a modern day miracle is develop a vaccine in one year, actually less than a year. I mean, that is pretty miraculous right then and there to be able to do that. But the other side of it is, do you take the vaccine or not? Now, there are some people who won't take the vaccine because it's hooked into 5G and it can rewire your brain so that aliens can talk to you. I'm serious. There are people who think that. I go, okay, that's sick. Then there are other people who say, well, look, it hasn't been tested and there's side effects and there's this and that and the other. And da, da, da. That's a pretty good case to not take it, right? But then there are other people like, well, you know, it's good for everybody. So there's a little bit of debate. People are making their own decisions. Well, this topic right here that we're talking about is going to influence the decision you come to. What about this? You have kidney disease and you need a kidney transplant, right? They call you on the phone and they say, hey, we found a match. You know, getting a match sometimes is pretty difficult. We found a match. We got a kidney for you. You need to fly over to Germany, have the operation. You'll be good to go. You get on the flight and you're thinking, why did I have to fly to Germany? Or why did I have to fly to India to get this thing? And then you dig a little bit and you find out that your kidney came from China. And it was harvested out of a political dissident that was in prison. And people say, oh, pastor, you're making that stuff up. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Would you still get the kidney? You see, these are really big questions. You're going to have to answer them for yourself at some point. And what we're trying to do is show you how our society is allowing naturalists, otherwise atheists, to manipulate us into trying to control the narrative. And they're not accurate in doing so. So last week we started it off and kicked off on it. You can, like I said, you can pick that up. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit more about this theory called the conflict theory that teaches faith and science are incompatible. It was immediately debunked by historians and scholars, but modern day culture has really adopted it. The most popular advocate of the conflict theory is Bill Maher. He used to have a politically incorrect show. He's on HBO, The Bill Maher Show. And he talks about this all the time, how if you have faith, you're irrational and you have a low IQ. And he says, because by definition, they conflict. Of course, that is a falsehood that he propagates over and over to advance his agenda. So if you want to dig into the actual essence of that, listen to last week. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about why it persists, why it's still going on, how that influences you and me today. So I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to dig into a little bit of what the Bible teaches and shows uh, the principles here in the Bible show us why it persists in our society today, the conflict theory. I'm going to begin with verse 18 of chapter 1. Now, I have all the notes to this message on our, uh, under message notes on our phone app. So you can download that and get that. If you don't have it, don't worry. You don't have a Bible. That's okay because the the verses will be on the screen as I read them. And I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary so that you can track along. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, or another way to say it is those who don't believe in it. But to us, those who believe in it, 
we are being saved, it is the power of God. So this whole verses that I'm going to read are all about how we know God and how we know God through Jesus Christ. But what the principles that we're going to use today are how he argues that to be true. So it's very important to understand the distinction, okay? He says, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Meaning where is the Jewish scholar or the religious scholar? He then says, where is the philosopher of this age? And if you knew, know much about ancient Greek philosophy, that's what he's talking about. He goes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, isn't that interesting how he puts together the uh, teachers of the religious law or the religion of Judaism and Greek philosophy as part of the world? Isn't that interesting how he says that? Notice what he says next. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. So what he's saying is, look, trying to find me through religious practice didn't work. And of course, if you've read the New Testament, Paul makes this point over and over and over again. He says, once you know Jesus, going back to the Jewish law, it just doesn't work, right? A lot of the early Christians, almost all the first Christians on the day of Pentecost were all Jews. And then it went to the Gentiles. So that, and that means basically anybody who's not a Jew. So you and I, unless you're Jewish or you have Jewish heritage, you're a Gentile. So what happens is in this case, he's saying that approach didn't bring people to God. And then he's also saying, guess what else didn't? The wisdom of Greek philosophy and Roman philosophers, that didn't work either. And their whole thing was the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of truth. He said that didn't work either. Notice what he says next. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So what was preached? Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead. And that's how we are at peace with God and peace with ourselves and at peace with those around us. The Bible calls that salvation. Now, what's interesting is verse 22. Look at what he says. Jews who are religious demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, this is a very important verse right here. He's saying, look, Jews are following a religious ceremonial process. If you follow it perfectly, right, then the, the sign, the outcome will be this result. And what's interesting is the Jews were very frustrated at this time because they were under Roman occupation, and the promise is, is if we were to follow the covenant perfectly, God would deliver us. And so they're like, God, why aren't you delivering us from persecution? This is why some of the earlier followers of Jesus thought that he was going to come. And the first thing he was going to do is what? Deliver them from Roman persecution. Peter even thought it, that that was going to happen. Oh, it's finally to be king and kick out the Romans. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, Peter pulls out his sword. And what does he do? He attacks the high priest and cuts a servant of the high priest and cuts his ear off. So they were still a little, you know, what is Jesus exactly doing? They did, it didn't come clear until after he rose from the dead to the, to the followers of Christ even. But he's saying, look, Jesus, if you're a person that says, I got to follow one, two, three, four, eight, nine, 10, 15, 35, 678 steps, and boom, this is going to happen. 
Where's all your focus? It's, it's on what you're doing, right? And you want that outcome. So who does your success or failure depend upon? You. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, for me, rules are things that are meant to be bent, manipulated slightly, and broken on rare occasions. You know? Now, some of you are rule followers. You like, you really want to know what they are so you can follow them exactly, right? But, but so, so all of a sudden, it comes in, and somebody, this Jesus guy goes, look, I'm Jewish. I'm the son of God. I know all this kind of stuff. That doesn't work. What? We've been doing this for thousands of years. That doesn't work. So to, if you're a Jewish person and Jesus comes in and says, the only way you're going to get to God is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. When you see me, you see the Father. Then you're like, oh, I have to be in you. You see how that becomes a stumbling block because it's two different approaches. And then he says this. Now, let's say you're not even Jewish. You're just Greek. You're a secular person. You have lots of different gods in your life, all these pagan gods and stuff like that. So what you want to do is like, well, I'm going to have the knowledge of the gods because I'm going to pursue truth and knowledge. It all said, I don't even need the gods. It's all up to me. I'm going to figure out what's true, what's not true, and I'm going to do it myself. And in that process, I'm going to find wisdom. But you know what's interesting about that is who is finding the wisdom? You. Who's up to determining what wisdom is? You. Who has to do a great job of it? You. Does that start sound vaguely familiar like the Jewish approach, right? It's all up to me. And so Jesus comes along and says, yeah, that's not going to do it because knowledge, just pursuit of knowledge without an objective truth outside, without an objective revelation becomes foolish. It's foolish. And they look at it in it and say, well, wait, you're foolish. How could a person, the revelation of God, because the revelation of God was not rules, it wasn't facts, it was the person, Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God, he is the wisdom of God, and it's in him that we have power and knowledge and connection to God. So that's why he says this. To the, it's a very short uh, sentence, but a very powerful thing. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, if you're working your way and you expect an outcome and then Jesus comes into the equation, if you're Jewish or religious, you say, oh, I trip over that. That doesn't make sense. If I'm trying to find my own wisdom, you think, oh, well, that's foolish. How could knowing him make any difference? So that is what he's saying. It's a stumbling block for Jews and it's foolishness to Greeks. He says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is now the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So what he ends up saying there in the end is basically, look, God is smarter and stronger than anything we could come up with on earth anyway, right? Because he's God. So he's just basically saying, God's a big kahuna. Now, I, that's interpretation of ancient Hebrew, you know, in the Polynesian tongue. So, so that's what's happening there. And now he has two principles here. I want to recap for you if you're taking notes. I just want to show is he says, first, Jesus is a stumbling block to the religious and Jesus is foolishness to the secular. That's what he's saying in that principle and arguing this is how we know God. And this passage points out why the conflict theory is still persisting today. Because one side, the secular, which are naturalists and atheists, 
are teaching history falsely. Intentionally, they mislead people today. And so people are ignorant of the actual history of faith and its uh, relationship to science. And then the other reason why the conflict theory persists is because of what is known as religious superstition. So let's break these down real quick and let's take what Paul teaches right there and then let us kind of get a deeper understanding as we apply it to our own life. This way you can think through how to make these bigger decisions and how to talk to your kids when the time comes. Now, ignorance of history. Why are they intentionally teaching a disparate or a false history today? Well, the reason why is because naturalists or atheists, otherwise secular, claim that nature is all that exists. Consequently, scientific uh, discovery is all about all that exists. Now, we found that to not be completely true last week. Go back and listen if you want to know how that works philosophically, because that's incongruent, meaning it's illogical to make that statement. Now, today, though, what happens is naturalists in the teaching of science and their desire to recruit young people and then adults into their frame of thinking is they say this, the scientific revolution occurred, and guess what? It occurred because people rejected religion, they rejected theism, they rejected Christianity. And when they finally got to the point where they could reject it all, that's when science took off and the enlightenment of man finally came into being. Is that true? Well, let's find out, okay? Now, Everybody knows that the scientific revolution, this is taught historically, in 1543, when this guy wrote a book on cosmology by the name of Nicholas Copernicus, okay? And this is his, what you see him predominantly all the time. You know, he's standing there, he's got the little compass in his hand, because his basic premise in his book was this. The earth does not revolve around the sun. I'm sorry, the, the sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. So it's opposite of the Ptolemaic, which to Ptolemy was a Greek philosopher. He taught that the sun revolved around the earth in this kind of weird, funky, flippy thing. And so today, this is what you see, and you talk about that all the time. And naturalists claim that Nicholas Copernicus started this and all of these people didn't have anything, you know, they rejected God and that's when it took off. So the question is, is that true? And what's interesting is that, um, I just want you to notice a couple things here. Uh, let's go back one, yeah. I want you to notice, see this thing he's holding here? This is the sun and this is supposedly the orbits around the sun and that's a big deal. So he's got the, the compass to draw circles and all kinds of orbits and stuff like that. The other thing that's really important to understand here is that he has a, a center part, okay? He doesn't have a side part, all right? Because side parts right now are what? They're out, man. It's all center part right now. Okay, so here he was. He's really lit. I wouldn't know any of this if I didn't have a 15-year-old son. So I want you to know that. But unfortunately, this is not the most accurate picture of Nicholas Copernicus. The next one is... And this picture is uh, in Christoph Harknach's book. He was a Polish historian. He wrote it in 1684. And I want you to notice a couple things about the most accurate depiction of Nicholas Copernicus. And number one is he still had, well, it's actually a side part, not a center part. I think that's a big deal. But notice how he's got the perm on the side. 
I mean, that's rocking it back then in the 17th century, I would say. But notice, where is the globe in the thing that represents the orbits, the compass and the globe and all that stuff? Where is it? It's behind him. What's in front of him? The crucifix. And what's he doing? He's praying. Because what you never hear in school or university is that Nicholas Copernicus was a Roman Catholic canon scholar. That's all he did was study the Bible to figure out what laws would be legal and just for all human beings to adopt. Many of our laws today are based on that Judeo-Christian ethic in America today. So he was a hardcore committed Roman Catholic, which was one of the main forms of Christianity at this time. Now, what's really interesting is I thought what we probably ought to do is go back and show you real quick about how all the people that were Christians and scientists over the last 300 years that have influenced the scientific revolution. And so I thought, well, uh, how long will my list be? Well, I just thought you ought to know is I ran a list. And if you notice my list, right, how big is that? The words are pretty small. They're not very, very big. And so I said, well, let's run a list and run me a banner on it. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. If you're in the balcony, look at the screen. Keep going, keep going, keep going. There's your list. And this, of course, is just the wiki on it. So it, the, the number of Christians that influenced the scientific revolution is absolutely and unequivocally overwhelming. How in the world can you be historically accurate? How can you say that the only way the scientific revolution took off was because these people rejected science? You can't because it's false. It's false. Just a couple of the really big ones. This guy right here is Kepler. Kepler wrote this book that I will not try and read to you at all. Look at that. Man, that is, that is the like long. So he came up with the laws of planetary motion that are still in use in cosmology today. What is interesting is you don't hear in, high, in, in history is this, is that he was a Protestant he wasn't Roman Catholic, and he was one of the most ardent advocates of intelligent design. He said, look, God created the heavens and the earth. They're incredibly precise, and we can discover all of these laws. And if you take God out of the equation, you won't figure any of this stuff out. So he was one of the early and most uh, uh, committed advocates of intelligent design. This guy you've heard about in history, and his name is Galileo Galilei, or that's how I say it. He was from six, 1564 to 1646. Basically, what he did is he built a really powerful telescope, and based on his calculations, he said, look, the Greek philosopher Ptolemy was wrong. The sun doesn't revolve around the earth. Copernicus is right, all right? The earth revolves around the sun. 
Now, there was a debate in the Roman Catholic Church at this time about who to listen to. They didn't know. So they said, well, let's try to get along. Well, he was a little cantankerous and he didn't, he's like, no, I'm not going to get along. And so what they said, okay, well, we're, we're going to buy you an estate on the coast, all right, so you can't publish anymore. So today in what you're taught is that the Roman Catholic Church felt he threatened religion, and so they arrested him and tortured him until he died because he was committed to science. Well, that's just not true. That's not true at all because everybody at that time was committed to science. They just had a disagreement over what the science actually said. This guy over here, um, Isaac Newton, oh, one final thing about Galilee is that when he defended himself in court before the queen, you know what his whole defense was? The scriptures are never wrong. The Bible is never wrong. And the Bible teaches that the earth revolves around the sun. That was his whole defense. Now, this guy, Isaac Newton, he, everybody's heard about him. He's the father of physics, modern-day physics, launched the revolution, the three laws, Newton laws. Everybody who studies science has to get him. 1643, so he's a little bit later, to 1727. And he was very young in his 20s, and he wrote his Principia Mathematica, where he introduced calculus and, all, and had the law of gravity and, and all of these types of things in it. And what he said, basically, in that transformed the world. So if, you have, if you're in high school or college and you have to get through calculus and you're really upset about that, it's his fault. But I want you to notice something. He has a center part. <laughs> Just saying. So maybe the whole center part thing is not as lit as you think it is right now, okay? So what's happening is he wrote that in his 20s. But then after that, you know what he wrote the rest of his life? He wrote a whole bunch of other stuff, but you never hear about it. You never read. As a matter of fact, he wrote a bunch more of this stuff than his, his Principia Mathematica. And you know what he wrote about? Christian theology. That's what he did. He wrote all about that. The list, as you see, is so long, it goes on and on. So I think that we have adequately and factually refuted the notion that Christianity had no influence on the scientific revolution. As a matter of fact, we've proven the opposite. And that is without Christianity, there may have been no scientific revolution at all. There's a study done between 1900 and 2000, and they found that almost 80% of all Nobel Peace Prizes were awarded to Christians over that 100 years. 72.5% were awarded in chemistry to Christians. 65.3% were awarded to Christians in physics. 62% were awarded to Christians in medicine. 54% to Christians in economics, and in the most godless discipline of all, literature, 50% were given to Christians, Christian authors and writers. So you can see that there is a massive, a massive amount of historical evidence that shows that theism, Christianity in particular, has influenced science as a discipline and caused it to grow and innovate in ways that you could never imagine. But why does 
the naturalist today and why does our society continue to propagate the conflict theory? You would have to ask yourself if it's, it's not historical, it's not factual, why do they keep doing it? Well, answer that question for yourself because they have an agenda. And is that agenda honest? Is it intellectually uh, sound? Is it logical? I think not. There is a reason they're doing it. And it has nothing to do with science. And the sad thing is, is that when scientists and people in science allow naturalists and atheists to manipulate it, it hurts science. It hurts science. It slows down innovation. It, 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 science becomes used for something that it was never meant to, dividing and separating people, as opposed to being something that could pull people together because all it deals with is fact. And so that's what's really sad that's happening today. Fewer and fewer people are trusting in science today. And I don't think it's because science is doing a bad job in and of itself. I think it's because scientists are allowing naturalists and atheists to manipulate it for their own gain. Now, the other thing that really has kept the conflict theory alive is not just what Paul says, it's that Jesus is foolishness to the secular. They don't even want to consider theism and they want to recruit people out of it. But the other thing is this, it's called religious superstition, right? Religious superstition is, it was, he says, it's that Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jew who's trying to religiously get this result, right? What's really interesting is we see this happening even in Christianity today. Religious superstition is not good. And it's this notion that anything that has to do with knowledge, anything that has to do with science is evil, because it says right there that God disrupts the intelligence of this age. Well, that was written 2,000 years ago, right? So what does the revelation of Jesus today teach? See, and when that creeps into Christianity, that's not good either. I thought this was a funny picture that you would like. Here is a mathematical equation. And then here the guy wrote, Jesus is always the answer. And the teacher said, minus five, not on this question. Isn't that kind of funny? I like that. It's really, it's really interesting because this is kind of, you know, you love the children's ministry, love being around the kids, and you can go down there and you'll get a bunch of six and seven years olds and at church. And if they've kind of grown up in the church, you know what? The teacher can sit down. The teacher goes, out in your backyard, there's this little furry thing with a big poofy tail that eats nuts. What is it? Jesus! Jesus! It's got to be Jesus because the answer is always what? Jesus to everything. Who likes ice cream? Jesus, right? You know, and so that's fun when you're five. It's not when you're 50. You see, religious superstition on the other side of it propagates this conflict. What it does is when people practice religious superstition, it doesn't help science at all. And it is a stumbling block to walking in true faith with Jesus Christ. You see how these extremes cause the problems one way or the other. When religious superstition gets out of line, it has damaging effect. I want you to see this picture here. This is an ancient relief that was carved. This man uh, was uh, tied at the stake. He was beheaded. These are bales of hay or straw, and then he was burned to nothing. Now, I want you, his name was William Tyndale, okay? And notice the people in the garb around him. Notice this. Who, who executed him? 
the Roman Catholic Church did, religious people did at this time. They didn't, they didn't execute him because he was a pedophile or because he murdered people. You know what he did? He translated the Bible into English so that the people in England could read it in their own language. And you know what they did? They killed them for it. See, that's called religious what? Superstition. That's called religious superstition. And so all I'm trying to say here is I want you to understand is that Paul gives us very specific principles that what we need to do and what we should all do is realize that when we pursue science, when we pursue knowledge, if you remove an objective standard outside, you end up with scientific authoritarianism or you end up with unethical science, you see? You end up with the notion that, well, because you're a political dissident, I'm gonna keep you in prison until I find a kidney match with you and then I'm gonna harvest your kidney and sell it for profit. You see, you can do that when you can pursue science and knowledge without any objective standard. There, it becomes unethical because you can rationalize any outcome. You, you can think about this. If you use science to create, and back when I was young, they created weapons that were, could kill a lot of people, nuclear weapons. And the debate was, well, how many nuclear weapons do we need? And how efficient do they need to be? And, and so there's a big debate about that. Well, today, I, I don't know. Does anybody know yet? I'd like to know. But what happens when we move away from nuclear bombs to weaponizing viruses? See, I, I don't know what's going on. I hope they figure it out. But if, if COVID did actually come out of a laboratory, that kind of scares me a little bit. Now, I don't know. Listen carefully what I'm saying, though. See, I don't know. But boy, that sounds interesting to me because when you pursue knowledge and science without any objective standard outside, you can justify and rationalize anything. And what I like to point out is that I don't know if it's causal, I don't know if it's correlative, but it certainly is suspicious to me that if it came out of a laboratory in China, China is an atheistic nation. It's an atheistic nation. The people of China are phenomenal. I love the people of China. I pray for the people of China because right now the Christian church is growing faster in China than anywhere in the world. It is off the charts. But the CCP, the government that runs China, is evil. They are evil beyond evil. They, they actually have concentration camps right now. They practice slavery more than anybody else. They abuse their populace. It's just unbelievable, the evil of the CCP. Now, when I say that, it's on camera, it's on YouTube, so I'm not planning any trips to China in the near future. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> So I'm not trying to overstate, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I want you to think through this yourself. You know, what does all this mean? So as followers of Christ, we're going to dig into this kind of more closer to home in America next week about where I think faith and science can go from here in the next two weeks. But the whole notion of a naturalistic worldview ultimately hinders scientific discovery and innovation, particularly by getting fewer people to trust in its efficacy, meaning its honesty and its, its purity. And that's happening today more and more and more. Fewer people are kind of like 
Well, I don't know if I can really trust it. Are you even looking at the real science and the real data? How do we know? So, and I think we're, we're not trusting it because we're seeing it manipulated and it's manipulated predominantly by naturalists and atheists. So on the other side of it, let us not become superstitious in a religious sense where we uh, reject all knowledge. Don't forget that when Christ came to redeem us and save us, what did he do? He came to save our soul and our souls are manifested in our heart, in our emotions, in our will, and in our mind. In Romans 12, Paul says this very clearly. He said, you will be transformed by the renewal of your overly religious perfection and following all the rules that are laid out in the Bible. That's how your life changes, isn't it? No. He says, you will be transformed by the renewal of your ethereal experience in the heavenly realms when you sing 4,200 worship songs in immediate succession. Is that what he says? No. He says, you are renewed, transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds are critical to our faith. We are to engage them. And that's why Foothills is so different because we want you to know Jesus Christ in your mind, in your body, and in your soul. All of you, so that you can think for yourself, know what you believe and why you believe it. And then as a grandparent or a parent, when your 15-year-old grandson or, or, or your 15-year-old daughter sits down and says, what's all this about? How do you know right and wrong? You sit down and you say, honey, let me tell you why. This is what I believe. That will have more impact on that young person than any message I could ever preach. It mildly painly to say that. I mean, pains me mildly to say that. Just a little bit, but it's the truth. Your influence is what matters the most. Let's not forget that. Let's listen to our host. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org. 